Well, in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes to the church at Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the early 1980s, a cowboy from Tulsa, Oklahoma, moved to the big city of Chicago to refine his boxing skills and to compete for the heavyweight championship. James Quick Tillis was six foot two, weighed 100, 210 pounds. His nickname came from his lightning fast jabs. Tillis remembers first getting off the bus. He was carrying two cheap suitcases with him as he walked past the Sears Tower, the Grand Tower there, the landmark of the skyline there in downtown Chicago. Well, proud of himself and his decision to follow his dreams, Tillis, he set his suitcases down on the sidewalk. He looked up at this giant tower and he vowed to himself, I am going to conquer Chicago. But when James reached back down to pick up his suitcases, they were gone. They'd been stolen right there from under him. The moral of the story is, is that sometimes pride can get a person in trouble. But not all pride is bad. There is a good kind of pride, and then there is a bad kind of pride. There's a self-centered pride, a pride that shines the spotlight on us, on our talents, or our achievements, or our intelligence, or our appearance, or our possessions, Where there, whereas there is a noble kind of pride, the beaming face of a young dad cradling his newborn son in his arms, admiring that special gift from God. That's a good kind of pride. Or a young lady, giddy over her engagement, showing to her friends the diamond on her ring, the token of love given to her by her fiancé. That's a wonderful kind of pride. Or a parent watching a child walk down the aisle to receive that well-earned diploma, feeling that mixture of gratitude to God and also the satisfaction of a job well done. These are all good kinds of pride. You know, if you've been to the doctor lately, you know that there are two types of cholesterol. There's the good kind of cholesterol, the high density, the HDL. Then there's the bad, clogging kind of cholesterol, the low density, the LDL. The LDL is the gooey and sticky and clingy substance that sticks to the arteries and hinders the flow of blood. Whereas the HDL is solid and firm and flows through the bloodstream, it keeps the pathways cleared. And likewise, there is a pernicious kind of pride that sticks to a person's spiritual arteries. It hinders the flow of God's blessing. It cuts us off from the joy of the Lord. But there's also a proper kind of pride. This rejoices in what God is doing. It savors His grace. It directs the glory back to Him. A proper pride actually accentuates the work of God. And here in these two verses, Paul exhibits a proper kind of pride. He is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is high-density pride. 
Paul never blushed or backed down when it came to sharing the gospel. His love for, his loyalty to the gospel was unfettered. Paul was honored to have been entrusted with such glorious news. He wore the gospel on the lapel of his life like a badge of honor. To Paul, the gospel was more a source of pride than a master's green jacket or a World Series ring or even an Olympic gold medal. Paul boasted in the message of the gospel. You remember all Paul experienced. He was forced to sneak out of Damascus. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He was stripped and beaten in Philippi, stalked and chased out of Thessalonica, snickered at in Athens, scorned in Corinth. He even stirred up a riot in Ephesus, was nearly strangled in Jerusalem. Because of the gospel, Paul suffered physical pain, false accusations, emotional turmoil, spiritual heartache, social isolation, even public humiliation. Yet nothing dampened his enthusiasm for the gospel. Paul was proud of the message that had cost him so much. He gloried in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand, Paul was more than a persuasive salesman. Paul was definitely a satisfied customer. He had experienced firsthand the effects of the gospel in his own life. You know, at one time he was a Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus. Paul was a killer of Christians who had taken his show on the road when the message of the gospel came to Paul in a blinding light. It blinded him physically so that it could open his spiritual eyes. On the road to Damascus, Paul was introduced to the road to heaven. In light of the gospel, all the rabbis' well-reasoned religion was suddenly reduced to straw. Ideas Paul had taken seriously were transformed into spiritual slapstick. The gospel cleared away all his objections, all that had kept him blind to God's love and to God's Son. This morning, our road intersects with Paul's. I want to speak to you about the message that changed his life and that he couldn't stop sharing with everyone he met. This past week, I had another birthday. Seems like those things roll around every year. And as each year rolls by, I reevaluate how I'm living my life. What are my priorities? Life is a gift. How am I using mine? And I always return to the same reality. If I had vast resources of wealth and know-how, if I could tackle any of the challenges that face our world today, clean water, poverty and famine, Zika or Ebola, human trafficking, safe energy, women's rights around the world, illiteracy, etc., etc., there is still nothing more deserving of my time and my energy than the spread of the gospel. The truth of Jesus continues to have the potential to do the most good for the most people. In fact, it really is the key to lasting change and all the other dilemmas that we face. When a human being is reconciled to their creator, a love for others, a goodness forms in their heart. Their heart changes. A love is born in them. Not to mention, people last forever. Again, of what your eyes have seen today, remember, all that's eternal are the souls of the people around you. It's been said, the gospel is neither a discussion or a debate, 
but an announcement. And that's true. I've got good news for you today. God is not angry with you as you might have supposed. You don't need to hide from Him any longer. God loves you dearly. He wants to forgive you. And in Christ, He is dying to prove it. Not too long ago, I went to the doctor and I was told I had too much of the wrong kind of cholesterol and too little of the right kind. And I'm afraid the same diagnosis probably fits many a Christian's spiritual condition. Their bloodstream is too full of the wrong kind of pride and too empty of the right kind of pride. In fact, I want to shock you this morning. You've probably never heard a pastor tell you this. But many of you are not proud enough. You might possess some self-centered pride, but what you lack is a Christ-centered pride. Let me ask you, are you proud of the gospel? Does it surface in your daily conversations? Are you always on the lookout for an opportunity to share it? Does your heart swell when your mind dwells on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does your chest inflate with holy pride when you hear the wonders of the gospel? Over the next few Sundays at Calvary Chapel, leading up to Easter Sunday, we'll be focusing on evangelism, on how to share this glorious gospel with others. But here is step one. You will never get over your own fears and modern society's objections and even the devil's intimidation unless you become proud of the gospel. We all need the right kind of pride. Former chaplain of the United States, Lloyd John Ogilvie, once said that the average Christian today suffers from what he called reverse hypocrisy. Ogilvie explains this term. He says, this is not the hypocrisy of trying to be more than we are. It is the hypocrisy of trying to be less than we are. Hypocrites of the old order paraded their faith before men while hypocrites of the new order deny their faith before men. We are so sensitive to being placed in a category, so aware of the criticism and ridicule of our contemporaries, that we refuse to talk about the central hope of our lives. In other words, we believe the gospel. We've even been changed by the gospel. But are we ashamed and fearful to share it with others? Hey, we are not proud enough of the gospel. If Paul were wearing a vest when he wrote verses 16 and 17 here in Romans chapter 1, I'm sure he would have popped a few buttons. Paul was proud of the gospel. In these two verses, he answers four questions about the gospel that we want to probe this morning. First, why it restores. Second, who it reaches. Third, when it registers, and then fourth, what it reveals. First, why does this gospel restore man to God and man to his fellow man? How can the gospel restore the broken, fractured, splintered relationship that exists between God and man and man and others? Well, understand, the word gospel, it means good news. But the good news starts with some bad news. The reason people are out of touch with God and need to be reconciled to Him is that sin has created a rift in the relationship. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. 
Imagine twisting or crushing the coaxial cable that runs to your television. If that happened, don't be surprised when your TV gets bad reception. Contort that wire in ways that were never intended by the manufacturer, and you'll eventually get disconnected. And this is what our sin has done. God created us for His purposes, to live in ways designed by Him. And yet we've contorted and we've twisted those ways. We've gone our own way. We've violated His will, and it has caused a disconnect that God has to repair. This is the bad news. But don't get bummed out. The gospel is the way that God restores the connection. Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God. Apply the gospel. It's new wiring. It reattaches man to God and even man to his fellow man. It gets the current of God's spirit and love and joy and strength and life flowing again. The world we live in is suffering a massive blackout. The gospel is the only way to get the lights back on. As Paul says, it is the power of God to salvation. Paul sums up this good news of the gospel in one short, succinct statement found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes this, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day. This was Paul's tremendous announcement. Jesus was crucified, then buried, and then rose from the dead. The gospel is not some philosophical idea or subjective opinion or even a moral code. It never needs upgrades or modifications or revisions. It is based on objective facts that have been cemented into the annals of history. The Christian gospel is no passing fancy. It has stood the test of time. There are persecuted Christians in the world today who are just as sold out to the gospel as the first Christians who saw and met the resurrected Christ. And the reason for that is simple. Jesus is still alive. And he reveals himself to every new generation of believers. Paul recognized that the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, was the power of God to salvation. The Greek word translated power is the word dunamis, from which we get our words dynamic or dynamite. Hey, the simple truth of the gospel is a capsule that contains an awesome, unharnessed, supernatural power. The gospel is an extra strength pain reliever. I'm telling you it is. Swallow it. Absorb what's in it. Let it go into your system. And it will grip your mind. It will stab your conscience. It will warm your heart and save your soul. And transform your life. And propel you to places you never thought you'd go. The gospel sobers the drunk drug addict. And dries out the drunk. It restores virtue to the prostitute and humbles the stiff-necked hypocrite. The gospel purifies the lips of the liar and makes the perverted man walk straight again. It's been said, the gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. A simple truth is the unbridled, awesome power of God to salvation. And this term salvation is an interesting word. 
It means to rescue or to set free. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used to describe the liberation of a nation. When the Jews were brought back from Babylon to their homeland, they were considered saved. They had experienced salvation. Salvation in the biblical sense is the abolition of spiritual slavery. It's the shattering of a people's chains. It's bringing them back and restoring them to their their God-appointed position. Salvation is a fresh start. It's a beginning. It's a brand new year. It results in confetti and celebration in the streets. At least it should. It's all about joy and freedom and forgiveness and great jubilation for those who receive it. Reminds me of the man whose name was accidentally listed in the obituaries. Nobody likes that, to wake up and see your name in the obituaries. Well, he called the newspaper to complain. The editor apologized. But this man was persistent. He was really upset. The newspaper's mistake had caused him some humiliation, might even cost him some business. Well, finally, the editor told him, he said, man, he says, I'm sorry your name was in the obituaries today. Tomorrow we'll put it under the birth announcements and you can have a whole new start. Don't you wish it was that easy to start over? At the time of Paul's writing, people all over the world were looking for salvation. Observant men and women recognized that Rome was facing an ethical and spiritual collapse. Sin held the populace in a vice grip. People were drowning in a sea of anarchy, moral anarchy, and emotional despair. People were living unbridled selfishness and lust. In fact, wealthy Romans, they were known to eat and eat and drink and drink and then purge themselves or throw it all up so they could return for more. This was the unbridled selfishness that they experienced. In fact, exits in the Roman theater are referred to as vomitoriums. After the show, all the people vomit out. Sort of what folks do on Sunday afternoons when they go over there to Ryan's Steakhouse, that all-you-can-eat buffet over there. In the ancient world, neither Greek logic or Roman law could do anything to arrest this awful corruption that had taken hold of the empire. It appeared as if nothing could rescue Rome from its downward spiral. The philosopher Seneca, who was a contemporary of Paul, taught that all men were looking ad salutum, or toward salvation. Seneca himself commented that man's only hope was a hand let down to lift him up. And amazingly, that, my friends, is exactly what the gospel provided. A hand let down to lift us up. Hey, Paul was no backwoods preacher. He was no provincial wanderer. He was a cosmopolitan. He was a cultured man. The apostle had traveled from east to west, from Arabia to Athens, and he'd seen the world's problems, the same problems that befuddle us today. And Paul was very familiar with all the proposed solutions. Yet he knew there was only one hope. God had vested all his power in only one solution. It's been said the world has many religions, but only one gospel. Paul was proud of Jesus and his gospel. It alone was the answer for what the world was searching. I love the analogy of the man who fell down in this deep pit. Moses walked by and he says, If you had kept my commandments, you wouldn't be down in that pit. Buddha walks by and he says, hey, if you'll come up here, I'll help you. Muhammad walks by and tells him, says, if you don't get out of that pit, you're going to become my enemy. 
Finally, Jesus walks by the pit. He sees the hole the man is in. He gets down in it with him, and he helps to lift him out. Tragically, humans today spend too much time on symptoms, whereas the gospel reduces, addresses the root problem. Psychologists, sociologists, they try to clean up the stream by just skimming trash off the top. But the gospel heads straight to the source of our pollution. It deals with a fountainhead, man's heart. It shuts off the spigot called sin. A new beginning, friends, is not a pipe dream. It's not a pie-in-the-sky promise. It can commence for you this morning. God wants to rescue sinful men and women from the darkness of their sin and bring them into the light of His love and His forgiveness. And there is a power present that can get the job done. It's the gospel. All you have to do is to receive. There were people in the ancient world that scoffed at the gospel. They mocked. How could the death of an obscured, outlawed Jew in Palestine save the world? It's interesting, while ex excavating the ruins of Rome, archaeologists, they found a mural. It was a blasphemous sketch of a slave bowing before a cross. And on the cross, the pagan painter had hung a jackass. The caption at the bottom of the drawing read, Alexamenos worships his God. It was a mockery of Christianity. Another pompous Roman, a philosopher named Celsus, he wrote in the second century, If any man is ignorant, if any is lacking in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly to Christianity. Yet Paul wasn't discouraged. He wasn't intimidated by these insults. He knew this would happen. He understood that God had deliberately chosen to save the world in a way that would challenge its wisdom and its values. That God's plan would be offensive. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul explains God's method. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, for it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. God used what the Greeks and Romans interpreted as a defeat to mock the world's wisdom. It was the ultimate irony. One man's death and a bloody, brutal, barbaric one at that Bring salvation to the world. For the sophisticated Greek, unwilling to humble his intellect, clinging to his own logic, this was too much for him to stomach. For the Roman who admired conquering generals, why would God use a victim of a crucifixion? God was deliberately throwing the world a curve. To the Greeks, the cross looked foolish. And to the Romans, it appeared weak. But to the believing heart, Jesus is God's wisdom and God's power. And in choosing the cross as a means to salvation, God made sure that the first step toward our receiving it was to step over our pride. This ensured that only people with a simple faith and an open mind and a repentant heart would come to Him. Realize, sometimes things are not as they seem. In high school... I knew a guy who drove a modest, unassuming, unsuspecting, regular run-of-the-mill sedan. No vented hood, 
No wide tires, no dual exhaust, none of the hot rod stuff. He'd roll up to an intersection next to some souped-up muscle car, and he'd just start baiting the driver. Well, the driver and his passengers, they'd just laugh at him, you know, until the light turned. They didn't realize that under his hood was the baddest engine in Gwinnett County. Nobody outran him. But you never knew it until the pedal hit the metal. And this is why I'm pleading to you today. Please, don't misjudge the gospel. Don't you dare think, oh, this won't work for me. I need something more. I'm looking for something else. Paul was proud of the gospel because he knew what was under the hood. Oh, compared to the ornate temples of the Roman idols, the cross was unimpressive. The bread and the wine looked meager compared to the lavish pagan ceremonies. Yet Paul wasn't intimidated. He knew what was under the hood of the gospel. When the pedal hit the metal, when it was crunch time, the gospel of Jesus blew them all away. It was powerful. That's why the gospel restores, my friends. It is the power of God to salvation. But notice, too, who it reaches. This, too, made Paul proud of the gospel. He says, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. The gospel is for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, black and white. The gospel is for you. I really have a tough time buying clothes for my wife. I hope some of you guys can identify with me. If I buy too small, she thinks I think she should be that small. And then I'm somehow sending her some kind of subliminal message or something. If I buy too big, she thinks I think she looks fat and wishes that she was skinnier. The problem is she thinks too much. A lot more than I do. I'm just trying to buy my girl some nice clothes. This has gotten so frustrating for me over the years that I've stopped trying to purchase clothes for my wife. Unless, unless the tag says those magical words. One size fits all. Then I'm safe. I see those words one size fits all and I can't go wrong. And when you look closely at the tag that's hanging on the gospel, you'll also find those same words. One size fits all. Doesn't it make you proud? The same gospel is as suited for the college professor as it is for the high school dropout. It fits as well for the emotional as it does for the intellectual. It works equally well on child or adult, on man or on woman. The same gospel works regardless of your circumstances or culture or climate. It is exactly what the factory worker in Russia needs, the natives in Australia need, the barkeeper in Ireland needs, the rabbi in Israel needs, the housewife in Atlanta needs. It doesn't matter your IQ, your language, your background, your appearance, your diet, your taste in music, even your college football team preference. The gospel is for you. I'll never forget the night when my five-year-old daughter knelt in my office at my house with tears streaming down her face and was changed by the gospel. 
32 years later, her life is still a testimony. And it was the same gospel that transformed the life of a 50-year-old hardened trucker that I once led to Christ where we were sitting on top of a tractor trailer. The gospel is what the boss needs and the neighbor needs and the friend needs and your teenager needs. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. But there's a third question that Paul answers here. When does it register? At what moment does the gospel take effect in a person's life? I mean, what is required for the gospel to be received? And again, notice God's love for simplicity. It is for everyone who believes. That's all it takes. All it takes is faith. All it takes is a moment of belief. In the movie, We Bought a Zoo, Matt Damon, he plays a bereaved husband. He's just lost his wife. He quits his job. He takes his kids. He buys an 18-acre run-down wildlife park. He wants to do something memorable with his kids. And this zoo becomes an adventure that eventually bonds his family together. At one point, though, in the movie, Damon gets asked why he did it. This is how he answers. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. Imagine. 20 seconds of insane courage can transform your life for the good. But this is true of the gospel. It doesn't take years of labor or endless days of introspection or hours of struggle. All it takes to receive the gospel is to hear it. Allow it to excite your heart. Believe it in what it promises. Then embrace it for yourself. Hey, just 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and it can happen for you. It's sad how people and churches today have complicated the gospel. Rather than good news, some churches preach good wishes. You need to learn to think positively. You need to visualize what you can be. Have faith in your faith. Other churches preach good wisdom. Get into a support group so that you can talk about life, so that you can become accountable. You need to find a good how-to book on this subject. Still other churches preach good works. They'll tell you what you need to do, the 12 steps, the 7 principles, follow the formula, man. That's the ticket. But the gospel isn't good wishes. It's not good wisdom. It's not good works. It's good news. It's not self-help. It's Christ-help. It's not your ingenuity or your efforts or your kind deeds or your good conduct or your moral purity. It is the power of God through the person of Jesus Christ. What people don't need today is another course or another counseling technique. We don't need behavior modification. We need spiritual transformation. We need the power of a person, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul preached was not a principle or a philosophy, but a person who died in our place and rose from the dead and does so with power now to change our lives. If you've got a technique or a formula or a 12-step program and you can take Jesus out of it without it really altering its effectiveness, you might have good advice, 
But you don't have the good news. The good news is God's one-step approach. Jesus has done it all. He's finished the work. He said on the cross, it is finished. Now all we need to do is trust in Him. Christianity is not a way to behave. It is a fact to believe. When it comes to our forgiveness, all that needed to be done has been done on the cross. And now if we ask Him, God will forgive our sins and fill our heart with power and peace and with His presence. A friend of mine once walked into a kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. After the meeting, everyone approached him and tried to indoctrinate him on Jehovah's Witness faith and beliefs and so forth. My friend answered them with a simple question. He said, if I had just one hour to live, what must I do to be saved? Well, they mumbled for a while, but they never gave him a straight answer. One hour didn't give him enough time to go through their indoctrination process or to go out and peddle their magazines. There was not enough time to earn his place in their kingdom. Thus, they offered him no hope. This is not the gospel. Seconds before the thief on the cross put his faith in Jesus, before he died, In 20 seconds of insane courage, in 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the gospel. Does it take six months orientation or a month's probation or a week long of memorization or a day's indoctrination? All it takes is a heart of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 settles it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And finally, Paul answers one more question about the gospel, what it reveals. Verse 17 tells us the Christian gospel reveals the righteousness of God. This is a key word in Paul's letter to the Romans. It occurs 35 times in this one book. In a narrow sense, righteousness means conformity to what's right. It's a combining of purity and goodness and justice and kindness. A righteous person does what's right in every situation. Yet in a broader sense, the word righteousness refers to a right standing with God. And in this sense, righteousness should be the bottom line to all religions. You see, gaining and maintaining a right standing with God is what religion is all about. If a religion can't solve, if it can't resolve the issue of sin, if it can't obtain for you a pardon, if it can't produce some goodness in you, then hey, it's worthless. Yet the mistake all religions, except Christianity, make is assuming that the righteous person is the one who somehow makes himself righteous. That's not true. Here Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The just shall live by faith. In other words, the man or woman who enjoys a right standing with God, who lives in in a just and right standing before God, didn't get there by being righteous or just themselves. No, it took living by faith. 
You don't have to grind out some goodness to earn your way to God, to prove you deserve His blessing. Try that tactic and you'll never measure up. Salvation is not what you achieve, it's what you receive by faith. Martin Luther once said, If salvation could be attained only by working hard, then surely horses and donkeys would be in heaven. Just not any humans. How is man made right with God? And how does he stay right with God? The answer is a life of faith. Speaking of Martin Luther, he discovered this truth while on a pilgrimage to Rome. In Rome, there was a cathedral containing a famous staircase. Supposedly, the stairs from Pilate's judgment hall. Legend had it that the staircase had been dismantled and been brought to Rome from Jerusalem during the period of the Crusades. Even today, in the 21st century, remorseful sinners come to Rome from all over the world to climb the staircase on their knees, stopping on each step to pray. These stones are hard on a person's knees. The ordeal was the penance that Luther felt was necessary to make himself a just or righteous person. Yet halfway up that staircase, suddenly this verse, Romans 1 verse 17, penetrated Luther's thoughts. Suddenly it hit him. The just man doesn't make himself just. He receives that status by faith. Luther believed in the gospel. He rose from his knees, now free and forgiven, and he returned to Germany a new man. He wrote of his experience later, he said, When by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. The gospel of Christ is more than good wishes and good wisdom and good works. It is the good news. And this bit of news can change the hardest of men, the most jaded of women. It is the most powerful change agent on earth. It is the wiring that's needed to connect us back with God. It is our needy world's most desperate need. For each of us, the gospel is just 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery. But it can change our life. It can impact a family or a nation. It can alter a person's destiny. And so, are you proud of the gospel? Proud enough to let it have its full effect on you? Proud enough to proclaim it to others? Jesus was not ashamed to go to the cross for you. Let's not be ashamed to share the gospel with others. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the vital task of sharing our faith with the people around us. But we will never take that first step. We'll never even open our mouth unless we are proud of the gospel.